You're listening to The Wayfinder from the Near East South Asia Council of Overseas Schools. Tune into the voices of some of the most insightful thought leaders in the field of international education. Let's maintain transformational intent and find our way together. Joining me today is the incredible Ellen Mahoney, who is the CEO and founder of Sea Change Mentoring, an organization that builds mentoring programs for international schools. Ellen's work thrives in its emphasis on cultivating student well-being and providing care and support during important life transitions. She approaches what she does with sensitivity and cultural fluency, and it really is such a joy to have her here with me today. Hi, Ellen. Where are you tuning in from? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm here in Hong Kong. I have been looking forward to our conversation all week because I think that mentorship holds such an important place in my life, and I know that it's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. And the theme for our podcast is wayfinding, the idea that we're all weathering uncharted territory together and that we're collectively navigating the world of learning and leadership. I thought that we could start by talking a little bit about personal wayfinding. You are a third culture kid, and so am I. You grew up all over the world and then came back to the States where your parents are from. And I imagine that that was a complicated homecoming. Can you speak a little bit to your geographical journey and how that's affected your work with Sea Change Mentoring? Sure. Yeah, it was quite challenging coming back to the U.S. I I grew up in Asia primarily. I came back to the U.S. twice, once for middle school and again um, in high school, after high school for university. And, And when I moved back to the States the second time when I was 18, my parents remained in Asia. So in many ways, I felt quite alone. Um, and I think it's I think it's important when we think about third culture kids to think about which generation you belong to. So I'm Generation X. I, we didn't really have the internet as we know it. It was just you know coming out in college um, when I was in college at the time. So it was still not easy to stay connected with folks. So mm. I think that had a big impact. But in terms of how that transition impacted um, sea change and, and my career, it's it's absolutely directly connected. So I when I moved back to the States when I was 18, I struggled with the transition and I, uh, I would say suffered uh, with depression for about a decade. Um, and I, you know I didn't have the language to understand, oh, I'm a third culture kid. Oh, this is related to transitions and unresolved grief. So even though initially I did seek help, I didn't have the language to advocate for myself. So it was really hard. Um, and at the same time, I uh, wrote letters to my friends all over the world back in the letter writing days, uh, you know, to Brazil, to Australia, to Ghana, to, you know, Hong Kong and asked them, you know, how are you doing? Has this been a difficult time for you? And most of my friends said yes. And the very specific experiences they were having were exactly mine. So it didn't matter our technical nationality. We all had this difficulty in transitioning in common. And I just wondered, what is the name for this? How is it that no one prepared us for this? We cannot be the first group of people to go through this. Um, And then also a year into living in the US, I lost a, a very good friend to suicide. Uh, who was having her own challenges. 
in the transition uh, from being in an international school and then being an adult in Japan. And she was also like so many of our students, she had two different cultures. You know, her, her mom was Japanese, her dad was American and she had her own mental health struggles, but this really compounded things for her. And so we tragically lost her. And that just had a huge impact on me that I really couldn't articulate until years later. Uh, But ultimately, uh, once I got help and started taking care of myself and started investigating education and psychology um, in the U.S., I ultimately decided to make good on a promise I made myself when I was 18, which was come back to our community and give the help and support that I wish that we had gotten. Um, And by the time I was ready to do that, I had really understood the power of connectedness and the power of mentorship. And it just seemed like a really good fit for our community. Yeah. Oh, I got goosebumps while you were talking and I'm a letter writer myself. And I feel like I take for granted the fact that because I grew up with the internet, it's so easy to stay in touch with the people that I love and to send a simple check-in message. And I can't imagine how lonely and alienating it must have been to be so many miles away from home and the fact that home existed on so many different continents for you at that point in time. Yeah, it was hard. (laughs) I want to dive into the concept of social emotional learning as it relates to mentoring because it's coming to the forefront of our priorities as educators. And the questions that we're asking ourselves is how can we nurture students not just to be knowledgeable, critical thinkers, but also to be well-rounded individuals in the world who can take care of themselves and to reach out to others. If you were to talk about your version of a North Star for the social-emotional development of learners, what would that be? Yeah, I think – so first of all, I think sometimes we get – social and emotional learning confused with well-being. So before I say anything, maybe a North Star is just clarity of language and definitions. So absolutely. You know, for social emotional learning, we're talking about the competencies and mindsets that um, are required for young people, for all human beings to learn and be well. And so if you're going to look at CASEL, the Consortium for Academic Social and Emotional Learning, for their their model, which is a model that most international schools are starting to um, adopt, then they would say that there are these five competencies, uh, you know, self-awareness, social awareness, relationship skills, responsible decision-making, and self-management. Well-being really fits underneath self-management which are, you know, the skills and mindsets that are required of us in order to um, healthfully manage our emotions, um, among other things. Now, there are other competencies in that framework that impact well-being, like relationship skills. If we are not connected, if we don't have the opportunities to connect, and if we don't have the skills to connect with one another, and that's absolutely going to impact our well-being. So I just, maybe a North Star is being clear about the language we're using. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say that one North Star for me when it comes to social emotional learning, and it absolutely is relevant for our community, the international school community, is how important context is 
uh, especially cultural context. I remember years ago, I was visiting a school in Asia and um, they were showing me how they were excited that they had been using the castle framework for years. And they, sh- they pointed to like a handmade poster uh, in their office and it had the castle uh, five competencies, those that wheel that some, some of you may be familiar with, but it didn't have the concentric circles around that wheel. And uh, for those of you that are not familiar with that model, the concentric circles are these blue circles around those five con- com- competencies that represent culture. So um, the, the, the culture within the classroom, the culture within the school, the culture within the family and caregivers, the the culture within the larger community. And those circles had been taken out. And I said, you know, who who changed this? Because you're kind of missing one of the most important parts. If we don't take into our cultural differences, then we are really going to limit the kind of impact we can have. So I think that's a huge North Star for me. Um, For example, we know that in low context countries, the the existing SEL models and programs um, have uh, very little, very few barriers to uh, impact. I'll just put it that way. But for high context cultures, the adapting an SEL program, typically from the West, uh, is can faces a lot of challenges. It's not that it can't be impactful, but if we're not thinking about, you know, the difference between a more individualistic society saying that we value things like autonomy and personal responsibility compared to a more collectivist community might value family and community over everything else, then then we're really not honoring young people. We're not honoring our parents uh, in our community. We're not honoring um, what our kids really need to learn. So I would I, I would say right now, that's just a, a drum I am banging a lot is please let's think about how do we make SEL culturally relevant. Ellen, for those who are unfamiliar, how would you distinguish what a high context and a low context culture is? So for example, the, the United States is a low context culture, generally speaking. And that is it's sort of like what you see is what you get. You know, if I tell you that um, I I want to be your friend, or if I if you ask me to do something and I say yes, I will do that thing, that's that's what I mean. Um, in a high context culture, like one of the cultures I grew up in, that's that's very influential for me is Japan, and in a Japanese culture, um, it's a high context culture where you're looking at uh, there's so so many parts of. Um, the culture that we need to be paying attention to. Unspoken rules. Yes. Cultural norms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, hierarchy. What is, what's polite? Um, you know, it's, for example, it's not always polite. Um, let's say in Japan, if you're doing business, you don't want to put the other person in a position where they have to say no. So you have to be thoughtful about the context, the hierarchy, um, making sure that they don't feel embarrassed um, or insulted, and th- that's those are that's as simple as I can um, offer in terms of a explanation. You're mentioning that something that you want to see more of is us approaching well-being and social emotional learning with this cultural context, and I wonder within that, and also just in the 
when we're talking about social emotional maturity for students, what role can educators play in that? Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, years ago, Castle talked about how the one of the first steps that a school should be taking when implementing social emotional learning is to think about the adults. And so I like this question. <laughs> so I would say that you want to think about educators and parents and how can we provide the space time and resources uh, that they would require for their own social and emotional development. Um, That includes, when you look at the research behind adult social and emotional learning, that includes the more common competencies that we would be aware of, like relationship skills or self-awareness. Conflict management. Mm -hmm. Yeah, conflict management. Um, A big piece of that is also our cultural awareness, cultural competence. I like to, I like to think about it as cultural humility. And we need that for for the adults to be able to develop those skills and therefore model those skills, because that's the primary way young people are really learning um, these social and emotional skills and and belief development. So uh, I would say that that's incredibly important, starting, starting with the adults' own skills. Mm -hmm. You have touched upon so much here, and I want to pivot to an anchor. We are still uncertain about a whole lot when it comes to SEL. Collectively, we are in the middle of a mental wellness crisis, and it's affecting young people now more than ever. There are issues of loneliness and stress and depression and various forms of disconnect. As you approach all of this, what can help anchor schools, communities, and students themselves as they look for a quote-unquote safe harbor. As we're closing our conversation today, I wonder if you have any final words for our listeners. Yeah, I think, you know, I'll always say it comes back to relationships. So like you mentioned loneliness as being a real concern. For me, I've been looking a lot lately at the notion of resilience now that we're in this new phase of you know, quote unquote, post COVID, there was a lot of chatter about resilience. And what I saw out there was very individualistic, like go take a bubble bath or, you know, write in your journal. But I, I'm much more interested in this notion of collective resilience. What does it mean for a community to be resilient together? Because I really believe that that is how we get through the tough times and, Uh, And that is how we learn. That's how we, when we are interconnected, that's where we really learn how to sharpen our social skills and our emotional skills. So I would say that um, this notion of collective resilience is is an interesting one to, for us to be thinking about as schools. There's um, a, a woman named Michelle Barton, who's a researcher who has studied how organizations are able to deal with acute shocks like a war or um, a a epidemic or a pandemic uh, or an incident that happens in a school, whatever it might be, uh, while they're also dealing with the ongoing stress of being an educator or being a parent or being a student. And I think that's where we really need to zero in on. There's there's also a woman named um, Lizelle Eberson who's a researcher who studied this idea called relationship resourced resilience. And it's this idea that, yeah, it's this idea that when, when a terrible thing happens or when a difficult thing happens, 
we might have a fight or flight response, but that there's an, another way, which could be a flocking response, which is when we, um, we turn to our relationships and we ask each other, how can I help you? How can we redistribute our strain? And we saw elements of this in the very beginning of COVID um, when international schools were supporting one another and freely sharing. And I hope that we can go back to that as a, a model for us as a larger international school community. And we do that by investing our time and resources into creating spaces in schools for us to relate to one another, to connect with one another, to bridge our divisions. Uh, and I and I really believe that's the way forward. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to be thinking about what you said about fight, flight, freeze, or flock from now on. Yeah. And I'm Mexican, Indonesian-American, and I grew up in the Middle East. And one of the biggest things, I guess, a challenge for me when I moved to Canada for university was I was suddenly transplanted in this into this society where everyone was taking care of themselves. And I heard the phrase, I think it was self-improvement industrial complex. Everyone is focused on making themselves the best that they can be, whether that is through yoga or um, I'm not sure, like their own entrepreneurship. And, and hustle culture is something that my generation, it's just a huge part of my generation. And it's difficult for me to approach all of that and to assimilate into it when all of the other cultures that exist in my life oppose that. Um, so I really appreciate you bringing that up. Oh yeah, exactly. I think I think you you really have the context to understand it. I felt the same way. Just it does a lot of this like self development, self improvement work feels selfish, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and not to say that taking care of yourself is a selfish act, but there's a, a big missing piece, and it, I think it's really critical that we we zero in on that interconnectedness piece. And we need each other. We're allowed to need each other. Yes, <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Ellen, for making the time today. I'm really grateful for your insights. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. In my conversation with Ellen, we talked about emotional wellness and navigating difficult transitions. I thought that I would ask a student to share their thoughts with us. Here is Amina, a first grader who goes to the Schutz American School in Alexandria, Egypt. Have you been exploring big feelings lately? Have you been exploring how to calm down when you're feeling big feelings? Yeah. Yeah? We, a strategy that we do in grade one uh, is we do uh, five finger breaths. And uh, in last year, we did, we would rub our hands. It's called fire hands. And then we'd put it on our eyes or anywhere. What does that do? It helps me calm down, and sometimes the calm down corner. Ooh. What's the calm down corner? It's like a corner that you can go to it, and then you'll calm down. Mm. Let's imagine that you have a friend who is about to move to a whole new city, and they're feeling really stressed about how they're going to adjust to the school, the new teachers, how they're going to find new friends. What kind of advice would you give them? I'll tell them it's okay. You can have, uh, we can call each other, and uh, someday I, sometimes I can come to you and play with you, there and. Uh, 
you'll have a better life there and you'll also uh, get new friends know a new teacher new friends that's really kind and encouraging thank you amina you're welcome <laughs> The Wayfinder was produced by the Near East South Asia Council of Overseas Schools. I'm your host, Abril Sawarsa Rivera. We'll be back next month with another episode. Stay tuned and take care.